Hello everyone, this is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 2 and I spoke with Ralph Horowitz. Ralph began in sports media before transitioning into full-time betting. He is a prominent and opinionated horse racing professional in Australia. We covered the current horse racing industry and some of the challenges it faces, as well as his insights with regards to data, innovation and media. Before we go to Ralph, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Ralph Horowitz. I'm joined by Ralph Horowitz. Hopefully we can have an exciting chat about you know your foray into the betting world and then what's going on in your life so thanks again for coming on yeah absolute pleasure jake and look forward to uh having a bit of a chat i've yet to hear the podcast you did with shirt uh sean burn uh, but really looking forward to listening to it i just didn't want to uh realize how bad i would be in comparison uh no that's good we've got dominic burns coming up as well and then a few others so i'm sure you'll fit in nicely well can I t- I'll, I'll, I'll just preface everything uh, by just saying one of the greatest learning experiences I had in my life was a horse called Ranger, and I was privileged to be on air with Dominic Byrne. And uh, this was on uh, on RSN in Melbourne about five, six years ago. I was doing my best and thought I knew a little bit of what I was talking about. And uh, a horse called Ranger was having its first start in Melbourne from Perth. And uh, I said, oh, I think it would lead because I think it was drawn wide and, you know, it led once in a Perth race, so I thought they'd be aggressive. And uh, Dominic, who is an absolute gentleman, apart from being a legend of, uh, of wagering, uh, said uh, basically tore me limb from limb but completely politely and more than that was more than entitled to because I just didn't know enough at the time. I didn't realise that horse wasn't fast enough. That simple. It wasn't fast enough. And it was a, such a good lesson for me. And as I said, Dominic uh, was was very, very polite in doing so, but just picked apart why that couldn't possibly happen. So as soon as we finished, I just thought, well, I, my knowledge isn't good enough. I'm doing my best, but my knowledge isn't good enough. And that was a great lesson. And as a you know, mate of mine often says, the best way to learn in this caper is to lose money. And that's one of the few, uh, few areas of life where that is the case. Don't worry. I think it's mutual. After talking with Dominic for a while on the podcast episode, uh we all have plenty to learn, and he's one of the guys we can all learn from. And I think a few things you mentioned then we'll touch on as we go. But I, th- I think from the outset, it'd be great to just uh, for you to chat about your background a little bit, how you were involved in the betting industry growing up, and then how you got involved, you know, more recently. Uh, look, I'll probably be the uh, which the smallest real punter that you speak to, and by that I mean, you know, as far as what I spend of my own money on a bet, um, but maybe I'm the biggest because uh, I've chosen about five years ago to go completely chips in, to mix gambling metaphors and uh, and start up this uh, an app called Racetrack Ralphie, which has been my pseudonym for years, and which I'll get to, and uh, and my website, uh, and. As such, every time I publish anything, uh, as far as uh, you know, as as far as uh, information, with it being a midweek meeting or the big the Sunday meetings, which are my key business on Victorian racing, uh, I consider that my business is on the line. And when my business is on the line, and you're 48 like I am, with a couple of kids who are pretty young, and you have mouth to mouth to feed and private school fees and everything else, that, that's a pretty big bet. Um, so that's sort of 
where I am at the moment, but where I come from, I grew up in Caulfield, uh, which is, of, uh, you know, for wherever you're listening to this in the world, um, it's, a, it's a great, not only a great racetrack itself, with the Caulfield Cup being the iconic race, one of the iconic races of Australian racing, as most know, um, but also a training centre, and, uh, and when some kids uh, had paper rounds, uh, remember newspapers, the race story, um, I, uh, I mucked out boxes. So that became my love of, of racing, was hands-on with the animal. Uh, and I actually became a tradesman uh, after a couple of years of being a strapper. And I thought, God, this isn't quite for me. I don't mind working hard. But the respect that I have for people who are hands-on is, is never changed because of the seven-day-a-week relentless nature of the caper. I realised it wasn't for me. I became a tradesman, but then uh, through a, a sort of roundabout way, I got into some racing media uh, and was lucky enough to meet uh, Eddie Maguire and Trevor Marmalade when they were starting a Triple M show. And that was their uh, joint venture, if you like, or the, the, the dual media they were doing at the time with the footy show that became the dominant show in well in in the southern seaboard if you like for a number of years and through that that became my real work i was doing the becoming a tradesman during the week and doing some radio on the weekend and eventually i got a job at the footy show so eight years there sorry nine footy seasons there this is a long answer but it's getting to where i'm going um and that taught me most areas of media and while i was working in the footy media it worked in beautifully with racing because uh, the way Melbourne racing works, you've got the Autumn Carnival or the really the February-March Carnival uh, and obviously our iconic Spring Carnival. And the, that's bookends the footy seasons. That was my year for a lot of the time. But then uh, I had to work out a different way of making a living when uh, the narrow world of uh, footy media ended for me and joined uh, three uh, RSN. And I was also a racing manager for a private guy who had a lot of horses. So I got to see a diff few different angles of the industry. But when it came to betting, I wasn't much good at it. And uh, I've learned the journey that I'm a much better analyst than I am an investor. And an idea was given to me to start an app a race, uh, with, uh, as far as form was concerned. And I... I Got into it boots and all, but where I was lucky was I met a guy called Vince Accardi at the same time, and he taught me how much I didn't know, which is why I'm giving you such a long answer. Uh, hopefully it suits the podcast format, but he taught me how much I didn't know after following racing really since I was a young fella, as I said, in Caulfield from the late 70s uh, to five, six years ago when I started working with Vince, and uh, now I completely immerse myself in his work, do a lot of uh, work alongside of him. And, uh, and I've never been more engaged in watching and immersing myself in the sport and never been less interested in the media coverage of it. It's a fascinating journey, certainly, and you mentioned a few different aspects. I'm curious as to the – you mentioned the analyst side. There's obviously the, the handicapping or the selection side, so you've got to analyze the form and pick your horses and those type of things. Then you've also got the, the bankroll management, the money management side of it, which – most people I speak to seem to separate those two and quite often have different people or different responsibilities with those two different aspects. But then you with your digital business and the app, you've obviously got clients, you need to, you're, you're responsible for those. Do you do all three aspects yourself and is that a challenge? Yeah, I'll, so there's, I'll try and break that down a few different ways. Um, one is I think the, the, the biggest thing I've learned, if someone said singly, what is the biggest thing you've learned? Uh, you know, making the transition from 
a recreational punter and someone who just loves the uh, sort of the elite side of the sport. By that I mean mainly Sunday racing and mainly stakes racing, like you know the, the average horse racing fan to someone who lives and breathes it and immerses myself in the data, and that is that your eyes lie to you. Uh, that's that's simple. If you watch enough ball sports and you've got any real brains about you, uh, you can become an expert in those ball sports, uh, particularly if you want to you know, learn from others and what to look at and everything like that. Uh, with racing, peel it all back. Your eyes lie to you. Uh, you see things in races uh, that you think are significant, i.e. an easy win by a slow horse uh, or a blanket finish with three or four horses who may be very, all very, very good. And because it's a driving blanket finish, you think, well, maybe there's a bit of a query about the form. So peel it all back, just look at how fast they run. And what staggers me, and why I think ultimately is the, is the best edge, and this is all personalities aside, uh, by the way, I, I, I'll, use, uh, I'll use Twitter and so forth, Jake, for, uh, for various areas if I want to have a battle, but I'll never use anyone else's uh, medium, which is yours. Um, but if before a 100-metre final, and uh, you will see how fast Usain Bolt runs and you'll see how fast all seven other runners run in a 100-meter Olympic final in the media previews of it. Before any feature race in, in anywhere in, in Australia, but I'll, I'll talk about Melbourne, which is my jurisdiction, you'll see notes in the main media, which is comparisons. In other words, this horse carried this much weight, now it carries this much weight, and it lost to this horse by two lengths, but it beat that horse by a length. It's comparisons, but it's not measurements. <laughs> and measurements is how fast they run, and ultimately it's a race. So everything else you can break down, but I think the singular biggest thing you can learn from a handicapping point of view, to use the American phrase or just the punt if you want to use an Aussie phrase, is just use the data because the data tells you how fast they run, and then predictive analysis kicks in. So as I said, I, I think my strengths is being an, uh, an, analyst, an, analyst, an analyst rather than an investor, but uh, but but that's also because of you know personal circumstances. I meant when you start a business from scratch and your backs to the wall, um, you, you don't want to lose twice. And that is if you put uh, your information isn't that good on any given Saturday. And let's face it, it's a pretty volatile caper. Uh, and you have a bet as well. You've lost twice uh, because my sales will go down if I have a bad run. Uh, and conversely, my sales will go up. So I had to take a pretty disciplined approach, given I've got mouths to feed. Um, that. Uh, it, it's really important for me to say that the upside of winning twice isn't worth the downside of losing twice when it happens. So as I said to you, and I'm nice enough front with people, I'm a much better analyst than an investor, and uh, and my skin in the game is hoping that uh, my customers uh, win off information I provide to them. I think we'll touch on the data side of it a little bit more as we go. I'm interested in, from a personal point of view, certainly the... The weight side of things, for example, there's obviously a lot of variables that go into it. You mentioned that there's obviously the data element, then there's the, the predictive analyst type element also. Something like weight, uh, what guides your opinion when it comes to weight? Because weight's been around in, you know, you, they talk about the Doncaster and all these handicaps and no one's ever won with a certain amount of weight and all those types of things. What, for example, for weight, what drives your opinion and what drives your I guess, input as a variable for something like weight? Is it, you know, different types of research? Is it opinion? Because some people will say it's critical and others may say that it's completely irrelevant. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't, I, I'm certainly not in the critical camp and I'm not naive enough to say I'm not in the, uh, in the saying it's, it's irrelevant either. I'm pretty comfortable in saying that it's the most overrated factor of form. 
So if I say the most underrated is that your eyes lie to you, so you need to use data because people overbet the visual. Um, when it comes to weight, I think they overbet uh, weight differenti uh, differentials. And you, 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 you touched on something which I think means there's a real logical outcome to this, and, and that is, as you say, weight has been around for, I don't know, let's pick a number, 200 years or whatever when it comes to include the, uh, the English uh, uh, horse racing, but so you've been actually you've been able to very accurately say how much weight a horse is carrying for all that amount of time. So that's been the dominant factor, along with margins that uh, the people have, have used. You know, be it pounds and differential, uh, like in uh, like in um, uh, when it comes to English racing or the you know the kilos we use, um, but. Because you've, you've had that and margins, that's been the factual uh, things that people have been able to use. But what they haven't been able to accurately measure until relatively recently, uh, let's say let's say 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, but it's still relatively recently, is accurate speed. And ultimately, it's a race. It's a race between A and B. If you want to break it down the way Vince Cardi does it, he does it in three sections. You can say it's a race between A and B, B and C, uh, you know, C and D and whatever, anything, A to D if you look at the overall. So, I mean, there's various fractions into a race that makes it even more fascinating. But what I am completely comfortable in saying is that the weight differential is completely overbet and people look at it too often because too many times you see a, a, a kid riding a horse with no real competency, uh, bouncing around all over it, and they go, oh, wow, and the trainer put him on because, you know, you get the all-important three-kilo claimers, to use the uh, Australian vernacular. Um, but ultimately, what about the lack of talent of the jockey? And, you know, if, you, if, if, if the kid's bouncing around all the way compared to, you know, a, a perfectly balanced senior rider, well, surely that's more important. So that's my long answer, but I, I do think that that's my conclusion I'm very comfortable with, that weight is, is overrated. It's not, not irrelevant, but it's overrated when it comes to form study. Yeah, okay. So there's obviously a lot of variables that go into it. There's no doubt about that. Is there is there more than one way to win, or is it ultimately a, a value-based betting strategy is the key to it? Yeah, is it? Well, and then and then you peel it back even further and say, what, what is actually value? Um, so... Um, the variable side of things, that to me is why I'm just so fascinated with this sport and endlessly fascinated and, uh, and just so engaged with it. It, it. it does my head in the amount of racing that, uh, that we have in Victoria because you have to keep up with it all. And anyone who's in this area will, will say similarly. Uh, but that creates opportunities. But the, what, the fascination of it, uh, later on Darren Potter has a great, great phrase, and that is, uh, um, you know, it's like, it's like chess but more engaging. Uh, people who are engaged in chess, I'm not, a, it was as a kid. There's only 64 squares on it, but how many millions of combinations are there? Well, you compare that to to different distances, different jockeys, different uh, um, starting prices that you have to take into account, uh, different levels of fitness, different levels of talent of the trainer, uh, where horses are ultimately aimed compared to on the day when you're having a bet. The variables are just sensational, um, and, and it, it does. It keeps you really sharp and on your toes, and then you try and find the value proposition from there. So, uh, so as, as I said, I think to the, where you have to peel it back is to say what is really value in racing media. Uh, in other words, you, know, you just give tips, one from two, from three, from four, 
Well, then you can say, well, well, what about this $10 shot? That's good value. Well, that's fine, but you know, you're know, you going to lose money in the long term if you back lots of uh, horses at big odds because most of them are short in the market. I'll say to my dying day, I'd be delighted if a better one comes along. But last year's Cox Plate, the best value we will ever see in our life is, is Winks, who was much as $2.10 during the week and $1.90 on the day in the Cox Plate where she was just so far superior to the rest of the field. I thought so, pre-race, and that's a race I've definitely got right. We'll get them wrong too, but uh, you know, for her to be a dollar ninety, well, that's how, how many times could they have run that race and her lost? I think is what you ask afterwards, and I would say probably they could have ran that cox plate ninety five, ninety six, maybe ninety eight times, and she would have lost, you know, <laughs> or sorry, she would have won ninety five, ninety six, ninety eight percent of the of the times they ran the cox plate. So that tells you true odds was probably a dollar two, and they're giving you a dollar ninety. So that that to me is what real value is in racing. No doubt about that. So on the data side, what level of your analysis is, you know, the data side compared to other elements, including, you know, subjective elements such as, you know, watching a trial and placing a, a numerical value by the eye test as opposed to the sectional side and the data side? Yeah, so my starting point is is always the data. And because the reality is if you use the data to say what did happen in a race, that means your starting point is, is, is factual. Uh, before the predictive analysis kicks in. So um, my, you know, I, I completely immerse myself in Vince Accardi's sheets that he puts out, both his, his daily summaries, which are just the winners, 200 sectionals and the, and the leaders, as well as his, uh, his what he calls IVR. And that's the, the more in-depth side of things as opposed to, you know, how many lengths above or below benchmark that horses run uh, to the 800-metre mark from the 800 to 400 and the last 400 of a race. So that tells you what did happen, and uh, it's probably taken me, you know, sort of call it fin school. It's taken me like a like a uni degree, if you like. I'm four or five years into it, and I've got real confidence that I'm I'm very good now at saying what did happen in a race. And now what I have to keep improving on and improve as long as I'm doing this caper, i.e. the rest of my life, uh, is the predictive analysis side of things. So it's all data as your starting point, and then the the predictive analysis comes in when you start using things like uh, starting prices, i.e., why, why was a horse a certain price, uh, and and uh, and trainers' strike rates. Uh, trainers try and think what why are trainers running a horse in a particular race, the talents of jockeys, uh, the, the the patterns of jockeys, and uh, and then how the track's going to play on the day. And you know, unlike American racing, which is obviously on a very consistent surface, you know, the the Australian racing that's on turf. Uh, 12 months of the year, and I concentrate on uh, on our uh, on on mainly city tracks. But they've got very they've got many variables, and the curators we have are sensational. But they have a very tough job because uh, you know you don't uh, you don't see pro ams being run at Augusta in the weeks leading up to the Masters or at all. Uh, but we 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 ask our curators to race 52 weeks of the year and still peak on the uh, on the big iconic days. So what are maybe one or two or even three of the top uh, values you place when it comes to the predictive side is it and I've heard things like you know the market itself market intelligence and, and how the market's moving or or even something such as Betfair which is a dangerous beast as far as I understand but it can be a very valuable tool are they some of the things that you use uh, in addition to your initial analysis yeah so um, my starting point is just how fast horses run I mean I think that's that's <laughs> It, it sounds bloody obvious, but it's amazing 
how few people do that. Um, so what I do, I do a little template for myself, which is uh, the links above benchmark that the horse has done its past three starts um, and also what its lead speed has been. And the reason for that is it gives you a real uh, likely setup of a, <coughs> excuse me, of a, <coughs> of a race shape. And I think that's where the, the race shape is, is a term that I think is really coming into vogue and uh, it's overtaken speed maps because often speed maps are really positioning maps. And by that I mean so, you know, people say, well, that horse normally leads, uh, so it'll 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 be first and that horse is, is a back marker and it'll be last and we'll fill in all the other bits. And really once you, instead of doing that, try and look at what its, what, uh, its capabilities are in other words, how fast can it run when it's leading, and how how uh, how much does it lack tactical speed if it normally settles at the rear? And there was a recent race in Bendigo, which I was really proud of myself as to how I got the map right, and that was a horse called Burning Front that won on Saturday in a feature. And I just couldn't see this race not being run at murderous speed because on my little template I saw that there was going to be six or seven really really fast leaders that were going to take on Burning Front. And uh, and it did, and the horse was gallant, but it was it blew out and uh, ran, I think, fourth off, off the top of my head. It, but being really well backed, um, and that's what where I say race shape, and that's where that that template is so important as as my starting point. Uh, so that 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 then gives me a real feel for if there's going to if it's likely to be run quickly or not quickly, and then what the talent required to win the race will be. Uh, I'll give you another example. Recently was the New Market Handicap where I just couldn't see there being any pace in it. Now, if you, wherever you listen to this in the world, <laughs> New Market's meant to be our iconic sprint race in Melbourne in the in the autumn. And that's what happened. And I actually managed to find, for a small amount, a $34 winner. And that also tells you, by extension, that there's lots of, uh, of um, inefficiencies in the market because how could a $34 winner in Red, Red Kirk Warrior, was its name, win and then afterwards, the trainer say it's the best horse in my stable. So that's a pretty inefficient market. If if they thought it was only a three in a hundred chance of winning, but the trainer said it was the best horse in the stable, and it ran according to the speed map, i.e., perfectly positioned and an informed jockey. So all those variables had me bullish on it. And no, I'll get races wrong too. But you're gonna you're gonna not only learn from your mistakes, but you're also gonna learn from when you get it right. Uh, so yeah, that's my starting point. The template: how fast the race is likely to be what level of talent is likely to be required, and then from there, how the track's likely to play. Uh, if you ask for three variables, that's probably it. So the race shape is fascinating for me because if I'm an owner of a horse that has some speed but may not have sustained speed, and it has enough speed to get out of the gate and get to the lead, um, and then obviously might have a, a decent 400-meter sprint, wouldn't it be beneficial for that horse to to kick up, take the lead, and then start to slow down in the middle stages, and then try and you know kick off on the corner and use that sort of sharp sprint at the end? And then there might be other horses that are you know eight hundred to thousand meter sort of grinding horses that do have you know a decent last sectional, but it does take them a little while to wind up. Is it purely dependent on each horse in each situation? And and do the jockeys in your mind are they aware of that the strengths of the horses and the trainers? so that they can utilize that because there does seem to be a lot of uh, opinions out there that every ride is a bad ride and things like that. Is it is it in the industry something race shape and the abilities of the horse, Well, is everyone well aware of that and can utilize that to the best of their ability? <laughs> uh, the, the simple answer is no. Uh, it's amazing 
the amount of ignorance that is in the industry. So that, that provides two, two separate situations here. One is it provides you opportunities to bet against because you go, well, these people don't know how good or bad this horse is or they don't know uh, its capabilities or lack of capabilities. Uh, but, but then what you learn through trial and error is uh, is that their stupidity leads to leads to illog- uh, sorry not stupidity is the wrong word uh, their ignorance leads to bad tactics and I'll give you a great example of this was uh, the Australian Cup of 2016 uh, Hugh Bowman ended up winning the race on a horse called Preferment pretty good horse at Minor Derby now he uh, had also won the Turnbull in the in the autumn. Uh, sorry, in the in the spring. So the Australian Cups in March. The Turnbull is in the autumn. Two thousand metres at Flemington at weight for age. So in other words, and the tracks, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, were very similar and, and firm. So what we're talking is real apples to apple stuff. Now, when he won the Turnbull Stakes, he's a stayer. As I said, he's won a Derby and he's competed in a Melbourne Cup. Um, that horse in the Turnbull Stakes came from uh, virtually the back of the field. And then in the Australian Cup, Jude Bowman rolled forward, sat outside the leader, he ended up winning it on protest. But the point was, if he didn't roll forward, he would not have won the race. And the reason was race shape. And I've got the, uh, I've got the, uh, the database in front of me here. So I'll tell you, in the Turnbull Stakes, when he came from last, he was going uh, 0.8 or length below benchmark uh, because the leaders were flying in front of him. Now... When he rolled outside the leader to win the Australian Cup, he was going 10 lengths below benchmark. So he was going, even though he was outside the leader in the Australian Cup compared to at the back of the field in the Turnbull Stakes, he was going nine lengths slower. So it was the jockey's initiative that won in the race. And then after the race, the stewards questioned Hugh Bowman as to why he went forward. They didn't question the jockeys who showed no initiative and uh, just rode lazily rode to their pattern uh, and what they did, they questioned the jockey on the winner who went nine lengths slower because he went to a different pattern. Now, that to me tells you two things. One, that's why you back the elite jockeys because they work it out like Hugh Bowman did. But it also tells you too that our stewards uh, have uh, insufficient knowledge when it comes to being able to police our sport properly because they shouldn't have asked Hugh Bowman anything. They should have pat him on the back and then asked the other jockeys who did nothing. And that to me is the prime example of the lack of intelligence uh, that, are, that is out there and how many more years it's going to take for owners, jockeys, trainers, and unfortunately stewards to actually catch up. So how do you fix that then? Because it sounds like it's not necessarily clear-cut, but there's, I guess there's a way to evaluate the speed of the race, the pace of the race, not only from a, a speed map perspective, but like you mentioned, a race shape perspective. Can it be, I guess, implemented throughout the industry that... There are certain ways to look at the races and everyone may have, you know, different capabilities as a horse and as a jockey and each owner may want to slow the race down in the middle stages. Others might want it to be, you know, helter-skelter for the first 800 to sort of, you know, burn the fuel for everyone else. Is there a way that it can be sort of universally recognized or understood that there are elements of a race that should be considered uh, beneficial and others that are just, you know, adverse circumstances and cannot be tolerated from a from a... Stewards perspective and I don't mean cannot be tolerated I mean some they need to be considered in the full sort of scope of the whole race well absolutely because 
so I, I touched on that I was in the uh, in the AFL media in the in the mid nineties, and and here's an analogy that I that I often like using. Um, when I joined, uh, well, I suppose first Triple M and then uh, and then the Footy Show, um, a guy called Ted Hopkins had got the ball rolling when it came to measuring AFL footy. Uh, now, Ted had uh, was was iconically famous for coming off the interchange bench in the 1970 grand final, which was played before the biggest ever uh, then VFL crowd of 121,000, and Carlton did the biggest ever comeback from half-time, and Ted kicked four goals as an unknown, and basically uh, didn't play much more footy after that, and Became, uh, you know, lived his own life, but didn't really have much of an involvement in footy. But then he got back into it through coming up with a whole series of measurements for footy, and they were long kicks and short kicks and inside fifties and rebounds and tackles and gathers and pressures and all these other uh, different variables that had never been measured before. And what happened from a on-field perspective? Dennis Pagan, uh, the Kangaroos team, the century coach who coached two premierships in the nineties, and uh, Eddie Maguire, from a media perspective, uh, both embraced Ted Hopkins and said, this bike's on to something. So Eddie was promoting his work through the media side of things and saying, well, you're going to learn a lot more about footy uh, if you um, start realising what happened. Uh, and Dennis Pagan started using it in his what became the dominant uh, side of, of the decade. He originally said to Ted Hopkins, kick four goals, but how'd you get them? How'd you kick them? How'd the ball come to you? And that got Ted working. So he started Champion Data, and eventually the AFL bought out Champion Data. Why did the AFL buy it out? Because they thought that this will make our sport a stronger sport if more people, via our media outlets that are paying good money to, uh, to, to cover the sport, understand what's happening a lot more. And then they challenge things a lot more. And then since then you've had things like Supercoach or Fantasy Footy kick in, and that makes people even more engaged with the sport. So on one hand, it's easy for me to say, well, I get Vince Accardi's data and so do Vince's clients. But on the other hand, what's best for the sport is that everyone gets hold of Vince Accardi's data and IP. And if not, Vince, could be someone else with, uh, with algorithms. But I'll tell you what, Vince has got a 30-year head start on everyone else and it's pretty good stuff. And then what that does, it makes you more engaged in racing and you go, oh, I got it wrong for that reason or I got it right for that reason and you're happy or you're annoyed at yourself for reading it wrong. And that is the best way going forward. And no different to what you touched on, the stewards' dynamics. They wouldn't ask stupid questions like they asked uh, Hugh Bowman, and they would ask more questions to riders who ride initiative-free races or happen to re lead by big margins. And we had one in the uh, Oaks last year, also called the Squiddy Spirit, what led by a big margin. Well, it wasn't going that fast, but every other jockey decided to leave it alone because it was 100 to 1 that led all the way and won. That... Is, is the power that comes from the right information. Stewards should have it, jockeys, trainers and owners should have it, and it'd be better for the sport. And in the end, as I said, as my starting point, it still becomes predictive analysis when it comes to trying to find a winner. It doesn't make the caper easy, but it makes uh, you more engaged as a punting participant, and, uh, and it makes you want to follow the sport year-round, not just when there's big races going on, which is what the majority of people, unfortunately, do whatever, wherever you are in the world. Interesting, because on that thread with you know the champion data analogy, has there been any other innovations in the industry in the last you know six, twelve, eighteen months? I'm sure when Betfair started, it may not have been what it is now, but it seems to be a an essential tool. Whether you utilize it, you know, every race, every race day, it seems like it's a 
it's a predictive or it's an analyst tool for a lot of people in the industry. Has there been anything else in that line in the last sort of 18 months that you can say has or will have an impact? Uh, no, is the short answer. Um, and, and Betfair is actually a good case in point for the Australian racing industry as to how, I suppose hopeless is the, is the word. Maybe, maybe we're improving in certain areas. We are for change. I mean, I absolutely look at Betfair uh, in the lead up to every single race I'm involved in, whether I'm playing or not, because wisdom of crowds. It, it, it's telling you, I call it the truth serum. It, uh, it tells you what the market's thinking. It's not everything, but it tells you a big story. Uh, it's the market expectations, and particularly with, for instance, first up horses. You know, how fit, how fit are they when they come to play? Well, you can look at the mounting yard, but you also do yourself a favour and you look look on Betfair and, you know, the, the some stables, as soon as, they, as soon as they blow, they might as well be a million to one. Um, so that, that's a good example of racing innovation, or should I say lack of innovation, because the initial response to Betfair when it came in, a very, very smart and sophisticated product, and I've got no alliance to, allegiance to them, um, was to try and pillarium and uh, I think the, uh, the, fr- the phrase from a, a key, I think it was the head of the VRC at the time, was, uh, you know, we could get jockeys' legs shot off and other crap that was spoken about it. No, it's just an exchange. It's no different to the stock exchange where, where people look and read at information as to what they think values of company should be, they think what the betting value of a horse should be. It teaches you things. Racing wanted to shut that down. Uh, and when it comes to things like Vince Accardi, and Jake, I promise you, on my kids, I'll never use your or anyone else's to run personal agendas. But the work I did with Vince Accardi, the reason I got to know him was we ran a digital channel on, on RSN, the Melbourne radio outlet, and the engagement we had from customers was so loyal and they blew up so deluxe when it was stopped and when you peel back all the personality clashes, you say, well, how could you want to stop something like that in the industry? And the reason is there's too much, uh, like cats pissing in their own corner, trying to say this is how it should be done. Instead of embracing innovations, be it Betfair, be it the way Vince measures things, be it the way legends like Dominic Byrne approach the sport and teach people. Uh, you know, was one of my, I said about the data lying, well, one of the big changes for my, me was hearing that both Dominic Byrne and Robbie Waterhouse uh, barely look at replays. Well, well, someone's wrong, either me or them. I reckon it's me. And you've got to say, well, how do we make data more available to people? How do we make the way Vince uh, looks at racing differ to the way Dominic Byrne look at racing? They've got a lot of similar... Uh, or time form with Gary Crisp uh, and all those type of things. So put as much information out there in the market, not, you know, little... Uh, vignettes and stories and, and all these other irrelevancies to pundits because if you want people to be engaged when sports betting now is so sophisticated, well, you need racing information to be sophisticated to go with it. Otherwise, the sport will keep rolling over and, and uh, soon become an irrelevancy because it ain't that interesting watching animals ridden around in, in circles ridden by short people. Yeah, it certainly seems that the idea of change isn't always embraced and the idea of change at the moment, certainly from the outside and, and not being involved day-to-day, is involves a marquee and some champagne and some American uh, models slash Instagram personalities. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if the champion data of racing emerges in the next sort of five years or it's st- it seems to be stagnating as it, as it might be at the moment. So... Well, Jake, but just on that point, Jake, with, uh, you know, at least when it comes to the Instagram and the full marquees that the year-round punter sort of turns their nose at, 
at least racing's completely embraced it. I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. And uh, even if it is via the fashion industry and via the, uh, the as you say, the sort of, you know, the marketing that's towards the uh, the party crowd, and I was one of them in my 20s, I was as stupid as anyone. Um, but at least that, that is when racing is relevant and we own the back page, and even though it's getting intruded a lot on the AFL season with things like draft and postseason training, but at least racing is relevant during that time. My point that... that gets me really frustrated. You said racing doesn't embrace change. Worse than that, mate, worse than that is that they actively go to shut down change, and that is a really bad thing for any industry. So do you see horse racing as a long-term viable option for you as a sole trader, and and would you have, I guess, the same answer if you were advising a, let's say, a syndicate? Uh, Look, I do think... I do think there's always there's a, there's a long term play, and part of that actually is what I just said about the spring carnival. I mean, uh, past I don't know, I, I, I don't like the self insertion, but I'm self inserting here. Uh, I've been you know privileged to have a gig of uh, of emceeing the Melbourne Cup parade. It's the day before in the centre of Melbourne, the whole city shuts down, and jockeys and trainers go through an emoticade and and you know uh, through come retired racehorses and yeah, fashion industry and it's just awesome. So uh, I happen to donate my feet to a charity for doing so because I am, I am privileged doing that, and I don't think it's something I necessarily earn. Uh, and in that that case, you think, well, racing has got a future. Um, when you see um, the champions come along, people want to embrace racing. Uh, next week, we'll have a, a, a country town, and it's, it's a bit of, it's a two-edged sword here because they embrace jumps racing, but a country town will be completely flooded with punters, mainly blokes, I think they call it over schoolies for over 40s, feeling warnable. I won't be going there because I'll be posting more information, but uh, but um, I've done a few campaigns there and uh, and it's so much fun. So there's so many different pockets of racing that the, the community want to embrace via the fashion industry, via, via betting, uh, but it, it, the racing needs to be smart about it. And as I said, their starting point needs to be our main, our core business is that we're a wagering sport. We aren't a sport. Just stop covering it as a sport. If a trainer's got a broken arm, uh, why, why is that of interest to punters the next day that he's sporting a, sporting a bandage on his arm? It, the punters want to know either uh, why a horse ran so fast or why a horse didn't run so fast. That, that's the stuff that punters talk about to each other. At the moment, the coverage of the sport is talking a different language to what people who are engaged in the sport is, which is punters. So you mentioned sports betting. Do you delve into sports betting at all? And if you don't, have you thought about it? I don't. I'm fascinated by it. What, uh, when we finish, I'll give you a name of someone who has completely embraced it. You might uh, might be a big, good podcast uh, guest for you. But and and he um, he actually was a New York trader uh, when the GFC hit, and he had clients saying, well, "What do I do with my money?" And his starting point was, uh, uh, "I'm not too. I couldn't be confident about any stock, but." Better as a moral at Flushing Meadow next week, and uh, and he did. He won the US Open. So um, I, I'm I'm fascinated by in the dynamics of it. Uh, I've probably and this is only just a personal journey, but you know when I was full time in the AFL media, racing was my passion, my outlet. And now it's sort of flipped around, and also the team I support, Melbourne Footy Club, aren't as hopeless as we were for a few years, uh, and genuinely look exciting. So. Now, it, it's done the full flip for me. It's gone from a uh, from my job uh, to now my passion because racing is my job and my outlet. So I, I don't like uh, betting in, in that sort of sphere, but I'm very fascinated both with the dynamics of how the market moves and uh, and what 
racing can learn by what's happening in the sports betting areas and, and all the various quants and everything else that, uh, that an algorithm traders. And what sport don't do, even though I'm sure they'd be delighted if people never bet on their product, but what they don't do is actively try and shut down information, which is what the racing industry does. And that, to me, is a pretty bad irony, given that uh, racing relies on, on wagering people being involved in, uh, in sport. They rely on sponsorship, gate attendance, TV, media rights. Uh, they don't rely on people betting on, on the sport. Racing relies on people betting on it. So why they'd be thinking of shutting down or talking down that area is, to me, got me beat. It does seem more and more like a major competitor. So it'd be interesting to see uh, what does change, if anything, in the coming years um, on the sports side. Back to the racing side, do you have any, you mentioned Vince, but do you have any other mentors that you look to in the industry? Uh, no. No, I'd say not. And and one of the things I've done is completely shut myself out from from uh, listening or watching any racing media. Uh, I, I don't listen to any radio. I don't listen to watch any, any TV shows anymore. Occasionally, um, I'll look at Sky Channel Sunday morning review uh, from mainly to keep in touch with the Sydney side of things uh, because obviously, you know, at carnival time, you, you have a few mixed form ones. But it frustrates me so much, and that's why. I, so I can't really consume it. I'll turn on the uh, the Victorian racing coverage before a race, and turn it on after a race. If I'm really engaged or want to see some kind of mounting yard uh, coverage, I'll turn it on a bit earlier. And if I might have found a winner or, or want to hear a trainer or a jockey interview post race, I'll leave it on a bit longer. But in general, I, I, I don't sort of uh, consume any of that, and that 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 helps me. It's really helped me because. Um, I think it clouds your judgment, to be honest. It, if, if, if you're confident with the information you have in front of you, you don't want to hear what a trainer or a jockey thinks is going to happen. You're better off just looking at your own information. And and uh, and sometimes it's it's done in in uh, in all good faith, a trainer's tip. But uh, but it, it's going to bug you. I, I think it what well, it does with me. If a trainer says, "I tell you what, this horse is going to peek through its roof next up." You know, they're, they're really good at training. I just want to know that a horse is fitting well and then half. And and I'll give you a good example with uh, well, I'm talking with a horse like Winks of Chris Wallace. He used to listen to him and he'd torture himself over over his own horses, and particularly his superstars. And you know what? That's his job. His job is to be so paranoid and to look at every single minute detail of how his animal is. Uh, as a punter, you don't need to hear any of that, uh, any of that torture that the the person whose reputation's on the line with making sure his superstar turns up at its best. You just need to look at how fast the horse runs, and if you do, well, then you got a nice clear thinking, and then you walk into Cox Plate today with no doubt about how good she's going to be. Uh, and that's why I've, uh, apart from you know, as I said, all personality clashes aside, I've just found it easier to block out all the information, all the all the media talk, the noise as it often gets called. And, uh, and just look at the uh, at the numbers. Two more questions for you before you go. Um, first one, any books or podcasts that you can suggest or you listen to or you read um, for the listeners out there? Uh, absolutely. So predictive analysis is, is, a, is a big thing. So I'd, I'd rather sort of look at, at things like that and then immerse myself in them from there. Um, now I'm just opening up because uh, uh, that's what it's called Super Forecasting uh, The Art of Science and Prediction I've got the audio book of that I suppose because we're looking at screens all day I actually prefer audio books and podcasts to go to go with it so uh, that's Philip Tetlock uh, is the bloke who, who co-wrote that with Dan Gardner 
and love all that stuff. And so I've really immersed myself into the predictive analysis side of things because, as I said, I don't really get much out of the, the racing media side of things. Um, there's a guy called Nicholas Lavelle who has inspired a lot of the work I've done in something he calls the curve, and that is the importance of giving out good free information uh, when you're trying to make money out of out of the free area, and so that's why I've embraced obviously Twitter and Facebook, and uh, and uh, now uh, I give out free newsletters on my uh, on my service, my racetrackrealfy.com.au service, um, and try and put really good information out. You know, obviously, you know, plug stuff that I've got coming up, but you could. I've got a lot of people who read my stuff and I, they'll never become my customer. And I'm not worried about that anymore because of the work of Nicholas Lavelle. I uh, see Nassim Taleb stuff and I enjoy that. Uh, I haven't read any of his books yet, but I have a lot of his YouTube stuff on. And obviously Michael Lewis, uh, Moneyball, but also now he's done a book with Daniel Kahneman. Uh, and, and then you can the great thing about YouTube, and particularly if you're doing what we're doing in the bunker when you're sort of working away and looking at numbers, it's good to have a... YouTube stuff on and any of the Michael Lewis and Daniel Kahneman stuff on, highly recommend. And uh, and just it probably all ties all this in a bow. I remember Michael Lewis in one of his interviews post Moneyball uh, being asked about the kickback that he and, and Billy Bean, the uh, the baseball manager that he wrote about, got. And it was basically people don't want to know that things they've been looking at and the ways they've been looking at things for 10 or 20 or 30 years has been wrong. Uh, I was lucky that I completely embraced the fact that I was <laughs> wrong, and that's my personal journey. But the reality is, sometimes things, do, things come along which are better. And Moneyball came along that was better for baseball. And there are different things that come along with racing that, uh, or wagering that's, that's that's better for for what we do. So um, that's what I really enjoy about uh, about blokes like uh, Michael Lewis. Uh, and, and one last one, I suppose, is the Bill Simmons podcast. I completely immerse myself in it. He gets some great people on, even though he's, uh, he's, he's American-based, but he gets some guys on like, uh, uh, oh, I can't think of many, Chuck Klosterman and other guys. I just like the different thinking, the, the sports guys and uh, and the, the lateral thinkers rather than uh, racing stuff. Yeah, Bill Simmons is certainly a great one. Um, Harella Bob's on there, Cousin Sal. They have a, a good insight and a different insight onto what's going on, so I can certainly second that. Um, I just wanted to get... Any contact details or anything you wanted to plug before you go? I know people might be interested in getting access to your in, your uh, sorry website and the newsletter and your information. What's the best way they can go about doing that? Uh, yeah, my website's racetrackralphie.com.au and I've got a, an app called Racetrack Ralphie and uh, I suppose just to finish with the reason for that stupid name is that it stuck uh, <laughs> when I started at, at Triple M in, uh, well, actually it was before I was in community radio back in uh, 1991. Uh, particularly with the surname of Horowitz, uh, you know, the, uh, never mind Pauline Hanson. It was even more back then. It was it was uh, it was a real wide Australia policy in the media. I thought I'd better come up with something that doesn't have my surname in it. Uh, and whether that was paranoia or not, I don't know. But there was a guy called Hard Luck Harry, uh, uh, Brian Meldrum, uh, who's Molly Meldrum's brother, and uh, he, he that was his moniker, Hard Luck Harry. And I thought I'd better come up with one. So I came up with the racetrack Ralphie, and it stuck. And uh, it, it sounded pretty cool when you're in your 20s, and now it sounds a bit stupid when I'm in my late 40s. But it's uh, it's it's what I use, and uh, and at least people know I'm authentic. I suppose when I'm doing it, they know who I am, and it, it's a moniker that goes with my real name. But uh, if they want to get in touch with me, they can via there or my Twitter handle if they if they want to be part of the uh, of the the battle that I do there, which is uh, RT Ralphie is my Twitter handle. But apart from that, I'm, I, I love uh, engaging with people and uh, and bantering, and we get them right, we get them wrong, but we enjoy the battle. 
Brilliant. Uh, I'm cognizant of your time, so I really do appreciate you coming on and having a chat. Uh, I had a dozen more things on my list. You mentioned there you got the app and the website. So, you know, the digital business in 2017 uh, in the betting industry is something that we might have to have you on again to chat about in the future. But I do appreciate you coming on and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Good on you, Jake. It's been great fun.